Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning, everyone. Hey, welcome along to Gateway. So thrilled you're here this morning. Thank you so much for giving up time on such a precious weekend. Um, we're glad that you're here with us. Um, as David said, we... Uh, David. As Chris said, we are in a series on David. Okay. It was a, it was a late night. Uh, yeah. um, and we've been tracing David's life through the geographical locations of his life. Not all of them, but the significant ones. And we've picked out five, really, that... Um, really are boundary markers of what God was doing in David's life. Uh, And we're looking at each of these geographical locations and talking about the tools that God used in that geographical location to shape a man of God or a woman of God. So, so far we've looked at David in Bethlehem, where we saw David being faithful in natural things, in the back paddocks, in the midst of the monotony and the obscurity, uh, and, and just the, the complete unknownness of Bethlehem's back paddocks. Am I right? Um, and, and the tools that God used to shape him there. Then Chris looked at David when he was at Gibeah. Gibeah was uh, the place that Saul's court was. In that place, um, David experienced initial success. Um, it was where he was a, a top musician, David, uh, Saul's... Um, Aide-de-camp, it was where he slew Goliath, and God tested David's heart with initial success. Um, We saw how God used his servant-heartedness mixed with um, Saul's profound insecurity to really continue to shape um, David's life uh, uh, as a man of God. Then last week I talked about David in the cave of Adullam, where he was tested by adversity. Up until this point, David's graph had been going up and to the right. Saul's insecurity changed that dramatically, and David ends up a fugitive, initially being persecuted by Saul in these one-off acts of rage, but ultimately it became a policy of state, and David became an outlaw. This morning, what I want to do is to look at David in Hebron. Um, So let's begin by giving us some kind of painting some background material as to how David got to this location. David remained an outlaw for between seven to nine years, and as we talked last week, during that time, um, Israel, under Saul's leadership, lurches between concentrating on ferreting out this outlaw with his band and, at the same time, dealing with Israel's arch enemies, the Philistines. So if Saul wasn't fighting the Philistines, he was chasing after David. And we see that story through to the end of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel in chapter 31 ends with Saul and his sons being in another battle with the Philistines. But this time they are killed uh, upon the Mount of Gilboa. Now, if you read these chapters, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, and then you have 2 Samuel, obviously chapter 1, some people get really bent out of shape over the conflicting stories that are presented in those two different chapters of Saul's death. In chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, we are told that Saul commits suicide by falling on his sword. And in the very next chapter, 
an Amalekite tells David that he was the one who killed Saul. And uh, sometimes you get scholars or people who read the Bible and, and say, oh man, the Bible's filled with contradictions and here's another one. I mean, um, how was he killed? The Bible contradicts itself. To be honest, it's not really a big issue. There are two possibilities, either of which could be true and both of which remove the claim that the Bible contradicts itself. Firstly, it's possible that Saul really did intend to commit suicide, that he fell on his sword, as the passage in 1 Samuel 31 indicates, and that the Amalekite came along and, uh, as he claimed, found that Saul wasn't quite dead and that at Saul's desperate request, he finished the job. That's possible. Perhaps more likely, given the evidence that we are presented with, this Amalekite simply made up the story to ingratiate himself with David, thinking that he might be rewarded by David for killing David's arch enemy. A, a lie, by the way, that backfired on him terribly. So either one of those two stories could be true, and, and you know, this whole issue of, well, the Bible contradicts itself really becomes quite silly, in my view, at least anyway. So Saul and his sons are killed, and 2 Samuel begins with David hearing the news from this Amalekite. By the way, just as an aside, interesting that if it was the Amalekite that did kill uh, Saul ultimately, um, ironic that it was the Amalekites that God told Saul to wipe out, and he didn't. Sometimes the very thing that God speaks to us about and we disobey on comes back to bite us significantly. Might be a moot point. But anyway, David hears that, the, um, that Saul and Jonathan have been killed. And in the first chapter of 2 Samuel, he is incredibly distraught, distressed by the news. And he composes a song to memorialize the lives of Saul and his profound and deep friend Jonathan. And the song is called The Lament of the Bow. Again, as, as an aside, it's truly remarkable the impact that the Bible has had on our Western civilization, just across the board. Obviously, in terms of what we call the Judeo-Christian values and ethics, upon its jurisprudence, and also upon its language. In this song that David sings, we have one of the most famous lines of Scripture, and it's trotted out again and again, and probably will be this week as well, Oh, how the mighty are fallen. But it's only one of the biblical phrases that has made its way into our common language. And uh, I'm constantly surprised by the number there are. You, you, you might have heard of a few. For example, we say, oh, that's a real fly in the ointment. Well, that comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Do you remember asking your parents about something and how did you know that? And they said, a little birdie told me. You ever heard that phrase? The older ones among you will have at least. Well, that comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. By the skin of my teeth comes from the book of Job. A drop in the bucket comes from Isaiah. At your wit's end comes from the Psalms. Feet of clay comes from Daniel. Riding upon the wall from Daniel. The blind leading the blind from Matthew's gospel. A leopard doesn't change its spots from Jeremiah. And on and on and on it goes. The Bible has significantly impacted Western civilization. And as much as we try and remove it from our public setting, we nonetheless uh, stand in its shadow in so many, many ways. So this song, the song, The Lament of the Bow, occupies the whole of the first chapter. And chapter two begins with a question that David asks the Lord. And it is truly a remarkable question. 
goes like this. And it happened after this, David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? You say, well, Don, why would that constitute a remarkable question? Well, listen, remember, David has been in the wilderness now for between seven and nine years. He's now 30 years of age. He was anointed by Samuel um, when he was a 17-year-old. So, so 13 years of his life, he's had this promise that's been bubbling away inside of him. And he's now just heard the news that his fortunes have, tra- have changed dramatically, that Saul, his opponent and the incumbent king, has just been slain. Surely it would be natural for him to conclude that this was his divinely appointed moment. That this time, and that this is a sign from the Lord that he's now to act and that the kingdom of Israel that God had promised him is there now for the taking. I'm personally convinced that the men who surrounded David and perhaps gave him counsel would have thought like that and they would have offered him counsel to that end. You remember that if it had been left up to them, Saul would have been killed a number of times ago. In 1 Samuel 24, uh, we have the story of Saul going into a cave in which David and his men were hiding. And David could so easily have taken his life then. In fact, David's men said to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemies into your hands. This is it, David. This opportunity must be from the Lord. Grab it, seize it with both hands, take it. Well, you know the story, I'm sure. David refused. He said, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. In 1 Samuel 26, just a couple of chapters on, David has a second opportunity to easily kill Saul. David and Abishai, um, one of his nephews, go down into Saul's camp and it says a deep sleep that had come from the Lord was upon Saul and his men. Saul lay there, Abishai picks up the, the spear and says, it's, it's the moment. God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Let me seize the moment. The Lord has opened the door. The deep sleep has come from the Lord. Why else would he put a deep sleep on these people unless it's that you seize this moment and take your opportunity? Again, David refuses and said, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. The thing about David is he's not an opportunist. He he does not operate on the principle that so many Christians do operate on. And that principle is, well, it's an open door. It must be from the Lord. Well, now Saul has been killed by the Philistines, not not by his own hands. And so the mighty men could have come to David and said, he's dead and you didn't do it. It's been 13 years since Samuel told you that the kingdom was yours. Now is the time. God has spoken. Take the kingdom now. Politically, militarily, this is a strategic moment. Jerusalem and, and all of Israel now lays at David's mercy. And they're saying, strike and strike now. These men are still affected by the way the world thinks. And although there has by now been much transformation in their lives, and they are well on their way to becoming David's mighty men, this is deeper than they have presently gone. And they are still moved by the world's wisdom, as so many of us are. And and we have proverbs that sum up this wisdom. Strike while the iron's hot. Make hay while the sun shines. He who hesitates is lost. 
That's the way the world generally assesses these kind of open door opportunities. And fair enough, it made good military sense to go up and take Jerusalem. All of the momentum was on David's side and every good general knows that when you have momentum, you must use it or you risk losing it. This open door lies before David, but, but amazingly, he refuses to simply stroll through it. He could have so easily simply agreed with all of those around him and interpreted Saul's death as an indication that God truly was opening the door for him to be king over all Israel. But he leaves room for the voice of God. He won't proceed without the Lord's counsel. See, David, it seems, had always listened to and had been moved by another drumbeat other than just what the world says is wise. And so at this moment, when everybody's saying, go, he stops and he says, Lord, is this the time? Is this the moment? Do you want me to take Jerusalem? And if not, where do you want me to go? I, I wonder that perhaps David wasn't thinking of another time in Israel's history that bore a striking similarity to the one that he now finds himself in. You remember that when the children of Israel were entering the promised land, you can read it in the book of Joshua, and in particular Joshua chapter 5, they had tremendous military momentum. The inhabitants were terrified of them. The Jordan had been miraculously parted so that they went through on dry land. The troops are in high spirits. This is the ideal time to strike. And Joshua's pulsating military sense tells them, press the advantage, retain the initiative that the parting of the waters of Jordan have given you. But Joshua hears another voice. Wait, we have things to attend to. And God has Israel in camp for an extended period while a new generation are circumcised. Speaking militarily, that's nonsense. Instead of using the momentum they have, they actually make themselves vulnerable to their enemies for a season while they await the healing process after the circumcision. And you see from these two incidents and probably numerous others in scriptures that we could mention that God's thoughts are clearly not our thoughts and his ways do not always correspond to our own. And David, unlike so many believers who simply see an open door and go through it, had enough sense to ask rather than simply blundering ahead, he says, Lord, is this the moment? Do you want me to go up? And if you don't want me to go up, where do you want me to go? And the answer comes back, I want you to go to Hebron. That must have been disappointing and deflating, if not for David, certainly for his men. As you know, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and Hebron was in, in an area that represented only one of them, and that was the tribe of Judah. So what, in effect, God says, I'm going to give you one twelfth of what I've promised you. So the answer is a partial fulfillment to what God had promised. And David and his family goes up to Hebron, his men go with him, and again we have another period of delay, and he spends seven years at Hebron. Remember, this is on top of the 13 or the 14 that he has already waited since Samuel anointed him. Just a thought. Could it be that sometimes God's providential open doors are designed to test your ability to stay rather than your willingness to go. 
a thought. Could it be that those providential open doors are designed to test your ability to stay rather than your willingness to go? I don't know over the years how many times pastorally I've had a concerned spouse come to me and say, my spouse has been offered this incredible job. It seems such an amazing job. It seems just such an open door. And they are very, very keen to take up the opportunity. However, I've got some reservations. Number one, we'll be isolated from family. Number two, as far as we know, in that area, we don't know of any other believers or even a church in that area. This seems on one account or on one side like a wonderful opportunity. There are profound reservations. And in those situations, for me, maybe this passage is that, I, that question you know, of is it your ability to stay that's being tested or your willingness to go, there, there are more things on the table than just simply advancement. And, and in those situations, what I would counsel people to do is you think carefully, you pray carefully. An open door may not necessarily be the leading of the Lord. This is what David did. One of the lessons I think we can learn for this, from this situation, and, and I think it's incredibly relevant for us in our present cultural moment, is be careful of the lure of opportunism. Opportunism requires action based on circumstances rather than actions based on God's presence, his principles, his promises, and his promptings. Opportunism so often rises out of a drive, an inner drive, not to miss my chance, or perhaps even a fear of missing the will of God. And, and we say, well, this issue, it's, it's, it's an open door. It's so hot right now. Let's, let's get into this. Let's get on this bandwagon. We don't want to be left behind. Uh, we don't want to find ourselves, as they say, on the wrong side of history. What can be equally confusing is that sometimes these open doors, these opportunities can be valid and can be even righteous issues. For example, taking the kingdom at this time for David could have so easily been aligned with God's ultimate purpose for him. We know that God had promised it. You know, one of the things that I really admire about the younger generation of today is that they are incredibly sensitive to issues of social justice in ways that I think my baby boomer generation were not. They are sensitive to racial issues, to economic issues, to environmental issues. These issues all loom very, very large for them. The concern that I would have is that it's easy jumping on the bandwagon of these valid and even righteous issues and end up being driven by causes, being led by this opportunism rather than being called and led by the Holy Spirit. As I've watched over the years, I've noted that if the devil can't stop you getting on the horse, that he's liable to help you and throw you right over the other side. And, and I noticed that um, a lot of people get involved in a huge number of causes. Opportunities and need are not always the same as God's call. They are not always God's direction to you to meet those needs. You need to ask. You need to say, Lord, is it time to go up? 
Lord, if it's not time to go up, what, you, what do you want me to do? Opportunism tells us that the need and the call are one and the same thing, and it presses us to action. You know, over the years, I've had numerous people tell me about some social cause or need or opportunity and then suggest to me in very strong language that if I don't get with the program, I'll be missing God's will for my life or for Gateway's life. And I've learned over the years that when there's that kind of pressure and that kind of haste to just slow down, that it's not always, even when the issue is right and valid, it's, the open door is not always God's call to me or to us. The Holy Spirit leads. He doesn't pressure and push. He doesn't seem to be motivated by this opportunism and a spirit of haste. And whenever there's that spirit of haste present, then I would, I'd be careful. Proverbs 21.5 says, Steady plodding brings prosperity. Hasty speculation brings poverty. And Isaiah 28 verse 16 says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. When you see that driving haste, we've got to do this, you've got to do it, and you've got to do it now. Jesus wasn't like that. He wasn't need-driven. He was spirit-led. He only did that which he saw his father doing. He could walk into the ancient equivalent of a hospital ward at the pool of Bethsaida where there's sick lying all over the place. He could pick out one person, he could heal him, and he could move on. Need and call aren't the same thing. Judson Cornwall wisely notes, the need is not the call. The need may alert our hearts to an inner call, but we should not respond to need alone or we'll find ourselves being need controlled instead of God controlled. There will always be needs. The poor you'll have with you always. We will exhaust ourselves if we interpret them as needs God expects us to meet. Open doors don't always equal the will of God. Be careful of opportunism. David rejects opportunism and listens for the voice of the Lord. Lord, do you want me to go up? I know there's an open door and it would seem that everybody is saying it's the right thing. I need to sense that you are telling me it's the right thing. And very clearly he hears, no, it's not the right thing. We have other things to deal with. Wait, go to Hebron. I think another thing that David is learning through this process is he he's beginning to recognize where his identity is rooted, where, where his identity comes from. It doesn't come from being the king of Israel. It comes from his relationship with God alone. It seems, and David is learning, that he doesn't need a position to secure his identity, and therefore, as a result of that, he doesn't feel the need to strive for opportunity or for success. And I find it interesting that in the delay in Joshua's time also, and the circumcising of a new generation, that too is about identity. It was the sign of who they belonged to. It was part of the Abrahamic covenant. And in circumcision, they were being cut to the core of their identity. In this season, God is deeply shaping David's heart and he's challenging his identity. Where does it lie? He's challenging any lust for position, any unholy ambition. You know, in my years in Christian ministry, I've seen people and leaders and I've recognized the, the signs in my own heart as well. 
of, of people and ministries that are motivated by an unholy ambition, by a lust for success, by a need for notoriety and position and how entirely inappropriate that is for a follower and a leader of uh, the people of God as we follow this one who made himself of no reputation. When we are striving for notoriety, for, for positions, for power, for influence, how incredibly inappropriate it is. So many of us at our core are like James and John who, using their mother, approached Jesus to advance their own agendas, and they are simply using Jesus to attain the prominence that they mistakenly think will secure their identity. And like James and John, so many of us are absolutely ignorant of what those positions that they were after actually require. When they make this request, can one of us sit on your left hand and one on your right hand? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm drinking from and be baptized with the baptism that I face. And, and Jesus is speaking about a union with his death and partaking in his sufferings, and these guys don't have a clue. Yes, they say, without any thought of what they're actually signing up for. They're completely blinded by ambition and position-seeking. The thought of being prepared for such promotion doesn't even register on their radar. You know, Man's way so often is we get a position, out of the position we get experience, and from the experience we, we have our inner being secured. I am, and, and we trace back from the I am such and such to the experience to the position. In God's order, that is completely reversed. And God says, let me deal with the inner being from which, of course, experience will come and then position can be safely given. You know, the whole of David's preparation, and we'll talk about this as we conclude with David coming to Zion, God was preparing David to stand in the midst of his dream successfully because so few people can. I said last week, the number of people whose gifts raise them to a position of notoriety where their character can't keep them there safely is beyond number in any field you like to ask or investigate. God won't do that to his children. He's working deeply in David's heart so that when he comes to the fulfillment of his dream, he can be there safely, that his identity isn't rooted in the position, but it's rooted in the inner being in his relationship with God. One of the tools that God uses and the tool that perhaps we hate most of all is he uses delay. He's in a dullum. He waits for seven years. Now he's got the opportunity to step into it and God says, wait, delay. And another seven years goes by. God uses delay to reveal to us what's in our heart. In Matthew 24, verses 44 through 49, there's a story. It says, Therefore, you also be ready, for in that hour you think not the Son of Man comes. Who then is a faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his Lord shall find him doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But... If that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, and he shall begin to strike his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. My Lord delays his coming 
And this guy turns from faithfully feeding the household to exercising some kind of domineering lordship over it, beating the other servants. And while he's demanding that they perform, he, he's busy eating and drinking, getting drunk. The delay didn't cause the problem. It simply revealed it. It was in the man's heart, and the delay brings it out. Remember Moses up the mountain getting the law in Exodus 32. It says in verse 32, verse, uh, chapter 32, verse 1, he delayed to come down. And the people turn to Aaron and say, make us a god. And they make the golden calf, they fall into idolatry. Delay didn't cause the idolatry. It simply exposed the tendency that, also, that already resided in their hearts. Delay doesn't produce anything. It reveals what's there. And sometimes God will allow us times of frustration and delay. When, when he's apparently not saying much, he's quiet it's not that he's inactive. In actual fact, I think in those moments, he leans over with a sense of expectancy to see what's in our hearts. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy, he will rest in his love. The original language, by the way, means in his love he will be silent. It's sometimes translated to be deaf, to not speak a word, to hold your tongue. On one occasion, that phrase is translated to plow, as in plowing the ground. And I wonder that in those moments when we need God to speak, or we want him to speak in a certain way, and he doesn't, and he says, wait, that he isn't plowing our hearts. And in his silence, in his love, he's finding out what you're made of, or at least showing you what you're made of. How do you respond in those seasons of frustration and silence and delay? Will you take matter in, into your own hand? Will you be, like David wasn't, an opportunist? Will you act in the energy of the flesh and seek to produce the promises of God by your own strength? Already David had been profoundly shaped and he knew his times were in God's hand. I think his identity had been secured in God himself and not just in what God had promised him. And David knew, as so many of us don't, that if he stepped up and took the kingdom by his own power, then he would have to maintain it by the same means. And that would make him King Saul II. He went to Hebron as God directed him, and there he waited for another seven years. The leaders, if you know the story, the leaders of the tribe of Judah came and anointed him king over Judah. So this is the second anointing. Samuel's is the first. Here's the tribe of Judah coming to anoint him the second time, and there is something of an enlargement in terms of what God has promised him, but it's not the full thing. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. He could have so easily just said, Look, finish the deal. For goodness sake, we can see where this is going. Let's just do it. He doesn't. He waits. You know, finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and verse 1, all of the leaders of Israel come. And they say, it's interesting. You know, they say, you know, right since those early days, you led us in and out. And we knew what Samuel had spoken to you. 
we think we should anoint you king over Israel. If I was David, I'd say, seven years in the wilderness, seven years in Hebron. You guys aren't slow learners. You're retarded. 14 years, and you've known all along. I feel completely ripped off. There is nothing of that spirit in David. He lets them anoint him. And we see the third anointing of David's life. And David stands in the fulfillment of that which God has given him. You know, just as an aside, and you might like to follow this through perhaps in your own study, but the way David leads or goes up to Hebron is such a classic study in terms of uh, leadership. God speaks to David and says, go up to Hebron. And so in verse, um, the first thing David does in verse one is David goes up. The second thing David does is he takes his family up. First of all, David embodies the word that God spoke to him. He makes it flesh in him. You spoke to me, I'm gonna do this. But the second thing he does is he takes his family up. He lives in a way that those closest to him were drawn also to follow. The ones that knew him best were his first followers. You know, so often the case with us leaders, the ones who know us best think we're a pack of hypocrites because we don't behave at home the way we behave in public. David has clearly made a different stuff, cut from different cloth. When God speaks to him, he seeks to embody the word that God has spoken to him and the people who live closest with him. Not that they would imagine he's perfect, but they, they do see this man's genuine. This man has got something and we will follow him. And the very next thing it says, David brought up the men who were with him, every man in his household. He, he led other people into what God had promised him. It's a classic study of leadership. David is a remarkable man and uh, one of, as you know, one of the very few men that God says of him, he is a man after my own heart. And when you study through how David waits when so many of us rush, when David prays, when so many of us just bumble on in, you can see why God said that to him, why he was a man after God's own heart. And my prayer for myself and for you too is that we could be cut from the same cloth. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.